Welcome to the Diplomatically Incorrect Podcast with Ambassador Ron Dermer. I'm Michael Mikowski, President and CEO of the Jewish Institute for National Security of America. Uh, I'm joining from the state of Maine today. Uh, and with me is my co-host, Ambassador Ron Dermer, former Israeli ambassador to the United States and a non-distinguished fellow at Jintz's Gemunder Center for Defense and Strategy. Diplomatically Incorrect is made possible with the generous support of the Alberto and Gabe Pesach family. This bi-weekly podcast offers straight talk on foreign policy, current events, America, Israel, and all things Jewish. You can subscribe wherever you download your podcasts. Please send any questions you have to diplomaticallyincorrect at jinsa.org, and we'll select some for our next episode. This episode is being recorded on Tuesday, um, April 19th. Before we uh, before we start, Mike, I think you just said, I think, I'm not sure, that I'm a non-distinguished fellow, which I love. That's better than being a non-resident oh, fellow. I so I think, I think we leave that for the podcast just to let everybody know that we do this thing live, mistakes, not mistakes. But from now on, if you don't mind, I'm going to call myself the non-distinguished fellow at Jinsa, <laughs> who hosts, who co-hosts the Diplomatically Incorrect podcast. So fire away. Great, great, great to be here again after two weeks. Okay, just for the record, uh, I meant non-resident distinguished fellow. You're actually, we should Non-distinguished resident fellow is, is better. I would rather Actually, I'm a non-distinguished non-resident fellow. Even better than that. I'd rather call you the non-resident, extremely distinguished fellow. But that's uh, how's that? <laughs> okay. okay, I'm glad we got that clarified, Ron. It's great to have you joining us from Mexico. All right, uh, Ron. Uh, last week, Jinsa organized a letter uh, signed by 47 prominent retired U.S. generals and admirals opposing the prospective Iranian nuclear deal being negotiated in Vienna. There hasn't been such a letter, there wasn't such a letter in the 2015 debate on the original Iran nuclear deal, uh, but we thought it was important uh, to, to, give voice, to give voice to these very prominent national security experts and their views on the Iran nuclear deal. It has received a lot of attention in the mainstream media uh, and, and in social media. Let me ask you this, what do you think, what do you make of such a letter and what do you think it reflects about the current debate about the uh, Iran nuclear deal being uh, negotiated in Vienna. So first of all, I you know commend my colleagues, uh, starting with you at Jinsa for getting that letter out, um, which I think came from several voices who are connected with Jinsa, admirals, generals who are concerned about the nuclear deal and putting something on paper that could get forty-seven generals and admirals to agree to is not a small feat. So I, I commend Jinsa for doing that. I think it's really important. Its content, I think, was completely on the mark in that it pointed out the fatal flaws of the nuclear deal, both on the nuclear and the non-nuclear side. Uh, on the nuclear side, as we discussed previously, you know, it has all these sunset clauses that don't change. So the original deal was 10 to 15 years. We're now seven years past the original deal. So to go back to the deal, you've got three to eight years. And in three to eight years, all of these sunset clauses are automatically removed, uh, which essentially means that Iran doesn't need to sneak in or break into the nuclear club. It can just walk into the nuclear club by building an industrial size uh, nuclear enrichment program with international legitimacy. And the breakout time effectively goes down to zero. And at a time... Uh, of their choosing, they can just decide to explode a, a, a nuclear device and, and join this nuclear club, which would be very dangerous for the region and for the whole world. It also stressed the non-nuclear aspects of the deal. In removing sanctions, it's going to fuel Iran's war machine in the region, release hundreds of billions of dollars over the next several years, and that money is going to go to their missile program, regional aggression, terrorism, and everything else. Uh, and it's just going to make it much more dangerous for America's allies in the region, my country Israel, your Arab Sunni allies. And I think also the letter stresses the fact that the missile program will continue. And those uh, intercontinental, intercontinental ballistic missiles that Iran is developing, as I never tire of reminding people, Israel and Iran are on the same continent. 
which means that those ICBMs are not for Israel. They're for the United States. And so I think it was very important for these national security figures in the United States to explain why this is dangerous to American national security. You know, I, as Israel's ambassador, I can make the case why this is bad for our security. I have thought in 2015, and I said that I think it's a grave danger to U.S. national security, but it's different when you hear it directly from U.S. national security leaders. You remember, Mike, that when the deal was made in 2015, the White House at the time, the Obama White House, would wheel out every single Israeli general, colonel, anybody who had a falafel on his uh, shoulder that they could find that would say something positive about the nuclear deal, they wheeled them out left, right, and center because their argument was not only that this deal was better for the United States, that it's actually better for Israel's national security, and it's better for the region's national security. Now, mind you, the leadership in Israel, led by Prime Minister Netanyahu and obviously many national security figures in Israel thought that this was a disaster for our national security. But what do we know? You know, we, we just live in the Middle East. The United States at the time was telling Israel, no, this is actually better for your national security. And I don't remember that we had many former U.S. national security officials at the time weighing in against the deal. And I think one of the reasons why it's different this time is not only because JINSA took an important initiative, but beyond that, remember 2015, there were a lot of question marks about the deal. Um, there was an argument that was made that if this deal would moderate, quote unquote, Iran, that if we actually were able to do this nuclear deal, we would moderate their regional ambitions, we would minimize the conflict that you have, and that Iran would choose a different course. Now, after the deal was signed in 2015, we had a year and a half under the Obama administration before the Trump administration came in. And in that year and a half, Iran's regional aggression just continued and actually accelerated under the deal. So when I was arguing in 2015 and I was going to members of Congress and senators and going on, on television, I would explain, here's what we think is going to happen when you sign this deal. We think it's going to make an already aggressive Iran even more aggressive. We think it's going to make the foremost sponsor of terrorism in the world, the Islamic Republic of Iran, even a greater terrorist threat in the region. But that was hypothetical because no one knew what was going to happen after the deal. But we saw exactly what happened. And I think it's one of the reasons why the current administration is not making the bombastic claims that were made in 2015. I haven't heard anybody say that it's going to moderate Iran. What they argue today is, oh, all of these threats from Iran would be much worse if they had a nuclear weapon. Uh, and of course, this deal actually will give them a nuclear weapon, but they don't, you know, they don't want to get into the weeds and the details of that. But I think the difference today compared to what it was in the past is we are no longer dealing with question marks. We are dealing with exclamation points. We know exactly what Iran is going to do with the hundreds of billions of dollars that come into its coffers. We know exactly what they're doing with their military nuclear program. There's no question anymore. The archive that Israel stole exposed how much Iran has lied to the world. So I think it was very good to hear from these U.S. national security officials, these 47 generals and admirals, to say, look, this is not just bad for our regional allies. It's not just bad for the Israelis uh, and, and our Arab partners in the region. This is bad for the United States of America. Uh, whether that will be some sort of game changer, I doubt it because for for this administration, uh, the Iran nuclear deal is, is almost an article of faith that they're going to push ahead. But it might actually pique a few interest in Congress. It might get more people to take notice and more people to put up um, obstacles to this deal, whether before any deal is made or after a deal is made in terms of reversing its damage. Yeah, let me ask you on the on the congressional side. There been there were eighteen Democrats uh, that expressed concerns about this deal earlier this month. You had Senator Menendez last month, the Democratic chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, also expressed a lot of concerns. You've had, as I think we pointed out in our last episode, there are I think at least three nego U.S. negotiators that have quit the team because of this. It's, there's been a, obviously a very different approach, uh, a, a tenor and, uh, to the debate 
that there was in 2015, especially given Israel's relative uh, quiet approach to this. But how, what do you make of that, uh, these, these rumblings on the Democratic side? Do you think, uh, how could that impact or would it have any impact, do you think, on what the administration decides to do with this deal? Well, let's remind our listeners that there was bi- there was bipartisan opposition to the nuclear deal in 2015. You had 24 Democratic House members, if memory serves, and you had four Democratic senators who opposed the deal, including Senator Menendez, who you mentioned, Senator Schumer, who was the minority leader, who today is the majority leader, Senator Cardin, and Senator Manchin, who's become one of the most well-known senators because he controls a lot of, on a lot of uh, legislative issues, the balance of power in Washington. So those four senators opposed the nuclear deal in 2014. I, I don't think there was a single Republican in either the House or the Senate who voted to support the deal. So you had bipartisan opposition then. Actually, a resolution of disapproval was passed in the, in the House. It was never brought to a vote in the Congress, despite the fact that you had 58 senators who opposed it because Senate rules with a filibuster, you need 60 to bring it to a vote. So it, it, it was it only, you did not get that 60 to vote for what's called cloture to allow for a vote. But there was a majority in both houses of Congress, bipartisan majorities against the deal. So now that you have 18 who have signed on to it, I don't know that it's fundamentally different than you had before. I, I think the question will become, you know, at the end of the day, the only force that seems that will put a stop to this nuclear deal seems to be Iran. Iran wanting more and more appeasement from the United States and the Iranian regime thinking they're going to squeeze the United States for more and holding back. And the latest the latest issue has been this uh, the IRGC and whether the IRGC will be moved from the terror designation list that were conflicting reports. One report said the United States is unprepared to do that. Another report said they haven't made that formal decision. That suggests to me that maybe they're throwing this out there, hoping that Iran will back down. Uh, but maybe they're really uh, still prepared to move ahead with it. I don't know. But it seems to me that Iran is the only one that's going to stop this from moving forward. I think the question will become, what happens if a deal is made when power shifts in Washington? First, if it shifts in Congress and the Republicans would take over, uh, in Congress. Now, it looks, by all polls, it looks like the Republicans will win the House of Representatives back. It's still a long way until the midterms, but six, seven, six months can change a lot of things. But right now, it looks like they're going to lose the House of Representatives. They may also lose the Senate. And what happens then when the House or the House and Senate are Republican hands? Can they begin then chipping away at the deal? What are they prepared to do to force the um, the putting back of the sanctions on Iran, because there are legislative tools to do it with must-pass legislation where you link it to other things. So it really depends how much they're willing to fight uh, for this. But I don't think it's going to fundament- fundamentally make a difference to the administration. It will simply raise the political cost somewhat for them to make this deal, knowing that there's bipartisan opposition. And, and I'll, say, I'll say one other thing, Mike. I think the fact that Israel is still relatively silent has not turned this uh, this snowball into something much bigger. Because if Israel was pointing out this over and over and over again and was mobilizing more forces in Washington to oppose this in a bipartisan way, and if we were speaking out and mobilizing our Arab partners in the region against this deal, then maybe that could create a critical mass where the administration will say that this is not worth it. But um, right now, I don't see that happening. I know we, um, I wanted to, on that last issue, I know we touched upon in our last episode, but I think it's worth discussing here because as you said, uh, this issue of whether the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard is delisted from the U.S. foreign terrorist organization list has become a key stumbling block, it seems like, in the uh, to a deal. And that is one of the issues, that is one of the sole issues, it seems like, at least recently, that uh, the, the Israeli government uh, has actually made a public 
issue out of. You had uh, the uh, Prime Minister Bennett and Foreign Minister Lapid, I think, issuing a joint statement on this. And the fact that it actually has resonated uh, could be interpreted in two different ways. One, they picked, they they isolated one issue that uh, that would resonate with people, certainly with American retired generals and admirals, given how many, unfortunately, how many American soldiers were killed uh, uh, due to the IRGC in Iraq, uh, hundreds of American soldiers. Uh, so you could argue because they made an issue out of it, they should be making issues out of more things, or is it because they happen to target an issue that they thought would resonate and how do you interpret that? And secondly, well, anyway, why don't you answer that? And I want to have a follow well, up on that. Well, the first thing also to remind the listeners, it's not just in Iraq where you're quite right that the IEDs that were planted that killed and maimed so many, you know, hundreds in the case of uh, killing and, and maiming thousands in Iraq were all backed by the IRGC, the, uh, the Revolutionary Guard Forces. You also have the Marine Barracks in Lebanon, Right. that were bombed. I mean, because the IRGC is essentially the, the the foreign terrorist legion of Iran. And you had the, you know, bombings of embassies uh, in Africa as well. There's been many attacks um, that are really perpetrated either directly or indirectly by the IRGC on in many countries and several continents. Um, and also the IRGC may be active right now in the United States. They're trying to assassinate former officials. They tried a decade ago, remember, to uh, there was an effort to uh, bomb Cafe Milano in, in Washington and kill the Saudi ambassador and potentially attack the Israeli and Saudi embassies as well. So the IRGC is a huge uh, problem. Now, I wouldn't say that Israel is really focused on and turn this into a public issue uh, or public campaign. They have made a joint statement about it. But as somebody who served for seven and a half years in Washington, when we want to make something a public issue, that what happens is I would do a dozen interviews on that subject and you would have very vocal meetings with members of Congress. And then you would you would put on social media that you just met them to discuss this or that thing. So I, it is true that the Israeli government has been louder on the issue of the IRGC than they have on other issues. But the, the bar for the other issues is effectively a zero or a one. And so maybe on this issue, they've raised it to a four. But they're not raising a public campaign against it. And I think it's a big mistake, particularly this government, because this government includes people from both the right and the left. And so if there's any argument, well, this is a political issue in Israel and only the right wing thinks this or that. Well, then you have uh, Mr. Lapid, the foreign minister of Israel, who's seen as a center left person. Get on American television and say what you have to say about the RJC. They'll invite you on. Get on CNN, get on MSNBC, get on NPR. Those are those are media outlets that the Democrats will listen to and speak directly to them. Reach out to your Arab partners. You just had that Negev summit, which we spoke about in the on 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 the last show. Do a joint interview. How about an Israeli foreign minister with an Arab foreign minister on television sources that would normally be seen by the Democrats on the Hill? and throughout the country and make a case why this thing is bad. That's running a campaign, turning it into a public issue, not issuing one statement, checking a box and, you know, moving on. And again, which we mentioned before, the IRGC issue, I, I, I you know, it's not the core problem with the deal. The core problem with the deal is that it's right. a glide path to nuclear weapons. The IRGC seems to be a, a bit of a straw that breaks the camel's back for certain people only because of its absurdity. Now, you asked me about the issue of is this symbolic or is it not symbolic, you know, and people are making this argument. It's not a symbolic issue. I was there in 2019, and it had taken us years to get to that point in 2019 where we were trying to get that designation. And why were we trying to get this designation? Because it gives uh, the United States government enormous tools to deter people from doing business with Iran, because the way that it, it's, it's structured is if you provide meaningful material support to the IRGC entity, then you're subject to these sanctions. And it gives the Justice Department an enormous array of tools. And it essentially creates a situation where people could face secondary sanctions for doing business with Iran, because the IRGC controls a huge part of the Iranian economy. So anyone doing business with Iran now all of a sudden can be subject also to civil suits 
in the United States from the U.S. Justice Department, and it's a tremendous deterrence. You take that out, out off, it will be much easier for people to do business with them. So it's, it's yeah, clearly not symbolic, and it was a long, I can tell you, Mike, it was a long time in coming to get this designation. The largest opposition were those who said, well, you know, if we uh, put an FTO on the IRGC, well, they're going to do it to our military forces, but, which was ridiculous to begin with. It was, it's a little bit like the argument over sanctions, because the argument over sanctions, just to, to make this point, People said in 2015, look, we have to get the buy-in of the world for these sanctions. If we go ourselves, if we do it unilaterally, it will never pack the punch. And I argued seven, eight years ago, I said, that is completely false. You've got a $21 trillion, now $22 trillion plus U.S. economy versus a $400 billion Iranian economy. If you force people to choose between doing business with Iran and doing business with the United States, if America and the American government forces people to make that choice, they're going to choose to do business with the United States. It doesn't matter what they politically think about the deal. So the Germans, the French, the British, they may all be supportive of the deal, but their companies are not going to be shut out from the U.S. market and the U.S. financial system. I think the same thing here with an IRGC designation. If you have that designation and you have the tools to enforce it, I think it's an enormous deterrent for, um, for companies and various actors doing business with Iran and is very helpful in, in raising the pressure against the Iranian regime. Yeah, I just want to clarify that. If you could just clarify that, Ron. Um, you want to clarify the year it was designated and uh, uh, what uh, what then put put this uh, over? What 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 led the U.S. finally to designate this? As you said, it was something that Israel has sought for a long time. Yeah, we sought it for a long time. There was a Treasury designation on the IRGC or on the CUDS force of the IRGC, which is another thing we can discuss about how they're trying to play around with yeah. this thing. But the State Department Foreign Terrorist Organization, which really gives a, the broadest umbrella scope for designating them, that was done, if I remember correctly, in April of 2019. And we made a huge push to have this happen. I mean, I was working on it for a couple of years more. It was in the system where we were trying to get it, essentially as soon as the Trump administration came in, because we knew that the Obama administration was not going to do this. So when Trump administration came in, we were sort of pushing for this. What I think was a triggering, no pun intended, a triggering event for this was Trump had made a, a decision. Uh, he tweeted out that he was going to withdraw all the troops from Syria in December 2018. And we thought we were very concerned about that. Uh, ultimately, it didn't happen. And that was largely because um, U.S. generals primarily in Iraq, convinced the president that this would be a very bad idea and send a very bad a message. So when we're talking about the impact that generals or former generals and admirals can have, that it can be a serious impact. But when Trump made the decision and he tweeted out that he was going to withdraw troops from Syria, we wanted to make sure that Israel would not be harmed, I think is too strong to say, but as as harmed as little as possible, because we thought that was going to send a very bad message and was going to be very bad for how America was going to be perceived in the region. And so the argument we made to the United States at the time is, look, if you're going to go and withdraw those troops, we're not going to tell America where to send troops or not. We're very sensitive to that. We don't ask America to send troops anywhere to defend us. We'll defend ourselves. But decisions of American troop deployments do affect Israel's national security. And all of a sudden, one you know bright December morning, the president of the United States, then Trump said he was going to withdraw those troops. And there weren't a lot of troops at the time. It was a pretty small contingent. And the situation in Syria actually had become more stable. And there were very few, if any, casualties for a significant amount of time because of that troop presence of the United States. So when, when Trump made that decision... What we said is, look, this is going to send the wrong message. Here's how you can send a different message. So do two things. And there were two main things that we asked for. One of them was actually to recognize Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. Also something we asked for before, but we didn't focus on it. The focus became right after in December 2018. That's why 
you know, I, I'm working on a book, but maybe I'll entitle the chapter about the Golan Heights, Flowers for Erdogan, because it was the Erdogan call to Trump that triggered Trump's decision to announce that he was going to remove the troops from Syria that then led to a series of events that ultimately uh, led to Israel um, getting U.S. recognition for our sovereignty over the Golan Heights. So the argument there was, if America's going to leave, you're not, you're not abandoning Israel. Actually, you're strengthening Israel by recognizing our sovereignty on the Golan Heights. But also, don't give a prize to the Iranians. Because for America to withdraw, Iran is going to use this to embolden all of their proxies through the region and to say, here the U.S. is leaving and we have to continue their attacks and everything else. We argue to them, well, now you should definitely declare them a foreign terrorist organization, the IRGC, because you will send a message that this is not, we're not leaving from a position of weakness, but we're actually going to have a blow against Iran. That was the period where we really focused the most pressure um, on, on getting this designation, and it happened ultimately in April. So we got the foreign terrorist organization in April 2019 against uh, Iran. We got the recognition of the Golan Heights at the end of March. And in the end, the United States did not even draw its forces. So all in all, it was a pretty good uh, couple of weeks there. I knew that Erdogan was a Zionist. I'm sure he'd appreciate knowing that uh, he helped facilitate uh, uh, <laughs> Israel, uh, U.S. recognition. As we say in Hebrew, afuch alafuch, yeah? Afuch alafuch, yeah. the ironies of life. The ironies of let me turn, uh, talking about not threats, but I guess uh, some other violence that's happened in Israel and some incitement, uh, maybe from a, a, a less likely source. So you've had violence recently. It's obviously, there's been a convergence of religious holidays uh, with Passover and uh, Good Friday and Easter and Ramadan. And you've had, uh, um, you've had violence on the Temple Mount. Uh, I think people have probably seen these pictures of uh, Palestinians in, uh, inside uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque with rocks and a number of them wearing shoes, which is forbidden. Um, and then you have the Jordanian uh, prime minister uh, and, 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 and Israeli uh, prime, minister, uh, prime minister Bennett has called him out, but you said you had him... Um, uh, the, the Jordanian prime minister praising, uh, quote, every Palestinian Jordanian Islamic walk, work, uh, a worker who stands tall like a turd and those who throw rocks at the pro-Zionists who are defiling Al-Aqsa Mosque while under the security of the Israeli occupation government. Now, prime minister of Israel Bennett has called him out on this, but what do you make of some of this violence? This is on top of other violence uh, that's been going on inside Israel. Um, and, um, but what do you make of this right now from the Jordanians, especially surprising to me, it seems like, because this government has really made, uh, has, has uh, pr uh, championed the fact that they have a better relationship with Jordan than the previous government. And it seems like there have been better ties. And then you have something like this. So look, first, first, on, before I get to Jordan, first, we'll talk about a little bit about the violence that you that you have in Israel. You had said before that people saw those pictures of of uh, within Al Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount, where they've got rocks in there and they're wearing shoes and they've, they're covered by Hamas flags. I mean, the truth of the matter is, I'm not so sure how many people saw those pictures because what they do, you know, pe people in Israel saw those pictures. To the extent that anything has penetrated the international consciousness, given what is going on in Ukraine, maybe a couple of people abroad saw those pictures, but many Palestinians may have seen different pictures. They didn't see the rocks. What they saw was Israeli police had to go in there and also to arrest a lot of people. So they may have cut the pictures in a certain way and put the videos out that here all of a sudden we're quote unquote defiling the Al-Aqsa Mosque and all of this absurdity because you have a nonstop stream of incitement against Israel. Uh, we have a, a, a pay-to-slay policy where the Palestinian Authority actually pays people who murder Jews, and they pay them more the longer their prison sentences are. Um, you have in the educational system of the Palestinians, you have in the, um, like I said, in the media and on social media, you have the glorification of killers. We had a situation in Tel Aviv where where the three people were murdered 
in this uh, in this attack at, at a bar in Tel Aviv where people were just enjoying themselves one Thursday night and a gunman came in and started spraying bullets everywhere. Three people die and they're handing out sweets, you know, in Palestinian areas and in Gaza and elsewhere. I mean, th- this is sick. It's it's a it's ghoulish, actually. So what these people see, I cannot tell you, but they have a nonstop steady stream of incitement. And I don't think it's a coincidence that this happens around the time of Ramadan, because that's when the forces that are trying to stir the pot, particularly the radical Islamists among Palestinians and beyond the Palestinian areas abroad, it could be Iran trying to whip things up. It it certainly was Erdogan in the past. I don't know if that has changed. It could be the Hamas uh, operations that I think are still operating in Turkey it could be other actors in the region that are trying to, you know, fire up the Palestinians and to see if they will do something and do these attacks. But it's uh, it's disgraceful. And and one of the problems I have to say on, on the U.S. side, I think we spoke about it last time. I mean, we're at a negative summit and you've got the secretary of state of the United States who is reading his points prepared to him by the State Department. And he's talking about settler violence. I mean, it's like living on another planet. We've got a wave of terrorism in Israel, and we've got these radicals that are being incited. And what the United States should do is make it clear that these actions are totally unacceptable. Not do this moral equivalency, mealy mouth, there are extremists on both sides, nonsense. And I think it has to take a very tough stand, because what happens is the signal that moral equivalence, or even criticism of Israel, which was worse in the case of what the Secretary of State did in Israel, it sends a signal that if you actually are violent towards Israel, you will actually gain ground because it, it, it won't, they may um, condemn it in the international community, but it will be this kind of morally equivalent condemnation on both sides. And then they will call for, you know, return to negotiations and you have to do this and you have to do that instead of actually facing a brick wall of opposition. And I think it's in this context that you have to see what the Jordanian prime minister did. So Jordan, I think, suffers from two problems. Number one is they are extremely sensitive to the Palestinian street, more than any other Arab country, because the majority of Jordanians are Palestinians. And it actually shows you the predicament that they're in, where once you have the Palestinian street doing something, there's this question about you know the impact of the Arab street, particularly since we had the Abraham Accords, where it seemed like it overcame all these decades of problems on the Arab street. You saw what happened in Jerusalem several years ago when uh, the Trump administration recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital and moved the embassy. And so it was a non-event in large parts of the Arab world. The so-called vaunted Arab street did not appear. But I don't think that's the case in Jordan. In Jordan, the Arab street is actually there, and it's a Palestinian street, not an Arab street in Jordan. And I think that impacts their entire political uh, system, and it shows the position that uh, King Abdullah is in. But what has to happen in order to change that is not just Israel saying something, and Bennett did push back. He didn't push back directly against Jordan. He made a general statement saying that it was wrong. What has to happen is that the United States has to push back against Jordan, and they have to do it publicly. Because what the Jordanian prime minister said was so outrageous. Because, you know, one of the videos I saw, I don't know if you saw it, Michael, and it happened yesterday, the day before yesterday, where you had Israelis on a bus going to go pray in the old city. And you had a gang of Palestinians who threw rocks. And these are rocks that are the size of softballs through windows. And these are women and children on buses. And had that bus driver not continued, we may have had a pogrom happen in Jerusalem because it would have taken the authorities about 10 or 15 minutes to get there. It's outrageous. And here you have a Jordanian prime minister who's calling for the Palestinians to throw rocks at women and children. That's outrageous. What has to happen is the State Department of the United States and the White House has to publicly push back against Jordan over that specific comment. I remember when Israel passed a decision, there was a low-level decision of some junior official in some zoning and planning commission, and the White House, no less than the White House, went 
public against the interior minister of Israel. Against that. You remember that? Was that Where when they, Biden, Vice President Biden was visiting Israel? Yeah, was when Biden was visiting and it was some low-level thing and all of a sudden they called it out publicly. It was such an outrage that the Jews were building some apartments in Jerusalem. Here you have not a junior official on some planning and zoning board. Here you have the prime minister of Jordan that is calling for violence against Jews. Like, this should have been done yesterday, and it definitely should be done today. The White House has to call out, by name and specifically, the Prime Minister of Jordan. And that's how you're going to put this thing back um, in a bottle. Because if you don't do that, then you're saying that this stuff doesn't matter. And you know what the argument will be in the White House? This will undermine the king. The king is in a very sensitive political position. No, the way that you'll actually strengthen the king, in this case is you show the Jordanians that there's a line that is too far. Because right now, all it is is forces that are coming from a Palestinian street coming up. And I think if the United States, if Europe, if other countries that constantly talk about how much they're supportive of Israel's right to defend itself, will publicly come out against the Jordanian prime minister and tell the Jordanian prime minister publicly that to call for violence against Jews is completely unacceptable, and we call for him to retract his words, or however you want to phrase it, that will help tamp this thing down. Because you can't allow a Jordanian prime minister to say what he said with no response from the international community. And if they don't do it, because they're playing all these inside baseball games thinking, no, we don't want to undermine the king, it's going to hurt the king, it's going to hurt Jordan, it's going to make it more difficult. They never think about that when it comes to Israel. They rush out as soon as they can with a condemnation of Israel on a lot of events that shouldn't be condemned. To begin with, and, and a lot of non-events just to create moral equivalency. The U.S. today, when this podcast is aired, hopefully it would already have happened. But the U.S. has to say, not privately, but publicly, that this is unacceptable. That's how the so-called free world sends a signal of what is unacceptable and not unacceptable. And what he said when women and children in Israel are... In, their lives were endangered by people throwing softball-sized rocks through a bus. When this prime minister is, is commending those for throwing the rocks, it is completely unacceptable, and the pushback has to be very strong, or else the problem is going to get worse. What do you make out of this political turmoil going on in Israel? I'll tell you about Israel's political system, because a lot of our listeners probably know the system well, but since we're trying to expand beyond the uh, uh, the core group that we have, so just to explain to people how Israel's political system worked is because we're a parliamentary system and we have a very different voting electoral system in Israel. Israel has 120 member Knesset parliament. And so governments need a majority in order to effectively function. What happened um, a couple of weeks ago is the government was essentially 61-59. There were 61 members of the coalition, and there were 59 members of the opposition. So one member of the coalition essentially defected to the other side to make it 60-60. Now, what does that mean? Now, here is where things get very, very complicated, and I'm going to try to keep the uh, diplomatically incorrect podcast to kind of Israeli politics. We're not doing 101 or 202 We'll do like the advanced placement course, but we're not going to go much, much further than that today. But in Israel, there are two ways where a government is brought down. The first way is what's called a constructive no confidence vote. And that happens when 61 members of an opposition will rally behind one person and will back that person to be prime minister. Basically, you create an alternative government. And that's different than the old system, which was a straight no-confidence vote. So if 61 voted against the government, the government falls. Here, in order to increase the stability of the coalition, they say, no, you need a constructive no-confidence. It's not enough to just vote against. you got to vote for somebody. And here's where it gets complicated in Israel's current political system, because while the opposition right now is 60, 54 of those are traditionally on the right. Okay, so you have the 52 members, which is Netanyahu's Likud party. You have the two ultra-Orthodox parties, Shas and Aguda. And then you have a fourth party, which was to the right, the traditional national 
religious Zionist party. Those party, four parties together, were 52. One member of Bennett's party, Bennett got seven seats in the last election. So the, the parties of the right who ran saying they were going to back Netanyahu because Bennett said he would support Netanyahu for prime minister and he would never support Lapid, but he flipped uh, afterwards, which is why they have a government today. But you had 52 members of that Netanyahu bloc that were opposed to the government. They, and uh, 53rd was added when the government was established who left Bennett's party. Now you had a 54th in this Adid Silman that decided to move over. So you had 54 who were against. In addition, besides those 54 who I would classify as being on the right, you have six members of an Israeli Arab party that is not in the coalition. Right, So there are four members of a party that is in the coalition or as until 24 Ron. hours ago when, when they yeah. froze, right, Ron. Ron. Yeah. So that And then you have a different list, Arab list in the Knesset, which is Ayman Uda and Ahmad Tibi. There's six members there. So those six members are opposed to this government formally, but they're not backers of Netanyahu. So those six are not going to vote for Netanyahu to be a prime minister. So therefore, the constructive no-confidence path requires you to pretty much get another seven members to go, to go from 54 to 61 in order to have an alternative government. But there is another way to topple a government in Israel, and that is when the Knesset disbands itself. So the Knesset disbanding requires also a majority vote. And here, you have a 60-60, because this Arab party of six they would like to topple the government and go to elections for their own reason. And if you have one more member that decides to go to the other side, uh, then you would ostensibly have 61 members who are willing to vote <coughs> for new Knesset elections. Um, if that would happen, by the way, Lapid immediately becomes prime minister. Because according to a law that was passed in Israel, if there is a changeover, he's, he is due to become prime minister in November of next year, November 2023. But the way they work the uh, the coalition deal is if there will be an election before that date, the new election triggers Lapid becoming a prime minister. So if the Knesset is toppled, Bennett will no longer... Was that done because Lapid wanted to protect himself if uh, there's a breakup of Bennett triggers uh, a breakup of the coalition, then he'll be... Right. Absolutely. He wanted to increase the prospects that he would be a prime minister. Uh, and it, if the Knesset disbands itself, which is three readings of a bill, first reading, second reading, third reading, to disband the Knesset, then he would become prime minister, but you'd have an election. And he'd be the prime minister of a government, what's called a transition government in Israel, for the three months or so Israel's elections are held minimum of 90 days. It usually doesn't go much more than 120 days. So it's somewhere in between three or four months for election. And then it takes time to form a government in Israel. And if you can't form a government, you go to another election. That's happened in Israel recently. So Lapid would be prime minister for a minimum of probably four to six months where he would become prime minister if you go to a Knesset election. So that's the background to this decision that goes from 61 to 60. You're one away from potentially disbanding uh, the Knesset. Mind you, if there is a majority to disband the Knesset, I'm not so sure that you're going to see, um, you might see a reshuffling of the government because at that point, it will either be a new election, which could wipe out some of the current parties in the Knesset, or some sort of reshuffle where Netanyahu emerges as the head of that government. I, it's hard for me to see somebody else. Technically, it's possible to have somebody else lead the coalition. But I, I think that given the internal politics, Likud and the coalition, I think it's unlikely to happen. But you might see a reshuffling as the die has seemingly been cast for new Knesset elections all of a sudden to go to an alternative government in the current Knesset. When the Knesset disbands... Yeah? What would that reshuffling look like? What would that reshuffling look like? Well, there's obviously the, the, most, the most obvious or usual suspects would be the more right-wing members of the coalition because you have obviously Bennett's party, which had seven seats. Two of them have now left, so you're left with five, including Bennett himself. Um, that takes you to 59. 
<coughs> and then you have Gidon Sar's party, who has six seats. If Gidon Sar would decide instead of facing election, he somehow is going to figure out how to go with Netanyahu for this or that reason, then you, you have a government immediately. Whether he will do that or not do that, I don't know. But the polls are not being very kind to, to Mr. Saar, and, and they're not being very kind to Bennett or in his party. So you don't know if the die is cast, if all of a sudden there will be some reshuffling. And I think if Netanyahu, frankly, I think if Netanyahu gets the 61, then I think he'll get a broad coalition pretty fast. Because I think then other members that don't want to, to crown him as prime minister, let's say, because of public statements that they've made, um, they may, once he is prime minister, they may actually join him rather than languish in the opposition. So you could see a switch much faster than people think, and it could also go to election. Now, the relevance, I think we're in, I think we're well past AP. We're like probably AP two at this point. But beyond this 60-60, now you have this party, Ram, that you mentioned, this Arab party that has frozen their, or suspended their support for the coalition. So that means the coalition is now at 56 on paper, not at 60. Now, they're not going to be able to pass anything uh, with 56 members. And I would suspect that what has happened is Rahm is feeling enormous pressure from the street, the Arab street in Israel, because of the situation, the security situation that is happening, because of the incitement that you have on social media, that pressure is boiling up for them to do something against the government. And they probably are trying to buy themselves a little time right now politically. The Knesset is not in session, as we said before, so there's no immediate triggering vote, although there are parliamentary maneuvers that you can do in order to force such a vote to happen. But let's assume that that doesn't happen. They're buying themselves there some time, putting out ultimatums and demands to Bennett's government, saying we want A, B, C, and D, and if you don't give us these things, we're abandoning the coalition. And Bennett is in an extremely politically weak position because he doesn't have strong support in the public. He can't afford to go to an election. So they figure they have him over a barrel. So let's see if we can squeeze out concessions to him. I think one of the things they want to do is about the status quo on the Temple Mount. There's an issue of monies that they have for various different projects, all sorts of ultimatums that they put forward so that they can show their own publics that they're delivering something from the government. And I, it's, a, it's a politically extremely unstable situation, and I don't see it getting more stable. It's, I mean, in, in Israel, if you don't have a majority, you can hobble along for weeks and in some cases months because the opposition may not have a majority to replace you, but it is very hard to do it. And the nature of Israel, the nature of the security challenges we face, the scenarios that Israel has to deal with all the time. Yesterday, you had a, the firing of a rocket from Gaza, okay? So now all of a sudden, we could have another front. Now, how are you going to fight a war in Gaza when you got an Islamist party in the coalition? These things make it very, very complicated. So I, I would be very surprised to see that this thing lasts much longer. I, I think it's a matter of weeks and not months. Uh, and then I think you're going to see a change. Whether that change is a different government or new elections, it's not clear to me yet. I would still bet on a government on the existing Knesset rather than new Knesset elections. But I think both are serious possibilities. By the way, you mentioned uh, Gideon Saar. The polls are not good to Yamina and uh, Gideon Saar's party. What are roughly the Poll numbers on, uh, do you know offhand? Uh, for I think the last I saw, I think Bennett was hovering like at five seats or the highest gave him six seats, some polls even four. And I think SARS party is right along the electoral threshold, which is three and a quarter percent and four seats in the Knesset. So he's hovering right there. And and the, the dynamic in Israeli elections I think would mean that if you're starting as an existing party at four or five at the beginning, it's going to be very hard for you to sustain that because you could have new players who will come into the Israeli electoral arena that will start getting the votes. That's why there's talk of some of these smaller parties, SARS party, Lieberman's party, Bennett's party, 
kind of uniting together to form some sort of joint Jewish list, you know, so that they can all get in. I don't know how that's going to work, frankly, um, because such parties that are kind of montages of other parties uh, don't necessarily do so well uh, in Israeli politics. Right now, the polls have the Likud party somewhere between 35 and 40 seats. I think I saw one was 38 and even another one was 40. That's very high. That's very high for Netanyahu historically to be at that level. I think he was there once shortly after the release of Gilad Shalit. I think he was in the high 30s. Another time at the beginning of COVID when he he was seen as handling the situation exceptionally well. This is well before the vaccines, which also... I must say he deserves a tremendous amount of credit because I was on all those calls with Borla and I saw his obsession with making sure that Israel would really be the first country to to have those vaccines. But at the beginning of COVID, the CEO of Pfizer, CEO of Pfizer, yeah, um, which we should all be very grateful for what uh, for what he did and what he was able to uh, to achieve to save so many lives. But at the beginning of COVID, this goes back to April of and May of twenty. 20. He was also, I think, in around 40 seats or 41 seats. So for Netanyahu to be polling that high, where the second party is 17 seats, maybe, or 16 seats, that's Lapid's party. So you're more than twice as big as the second largest party. Um, That's also rare, less than a year into a coalition that the head of the opposition would be doing so well uh, politically, and the government itself would not get some sort of a boost, even a short-term honeymoon boost that never happened. And I, and I think that's primarily a function of how the government was initially established, and because Bennett sort of went over to the other side, and 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 the ripple effects of that are still in the Israeli political system. But it remains to be seen which path Israel is going to go on now, but I don't see the current political situation as sustainable, and it gets more and more complicated, I would say, with each passing week, but it looks like with each passing day. One last thing on this. It's interesting that the has uh, been pointed out that uh, the, the falling out of this coalition is happening on the right, that it's happening uh, in within the prime minister's own party. Is it, what does that say about Yamina? Uh, is it that some of these MPs were not really, that party was not fully on board with this coalition when it joined? Um, I mean, aside from what we just said about Ram, what triggered it was someone from Bennett's own party. Now, he has said that he needs to, he probably hasn't been tending to coalition politics like he should, and he's going to be doing that more. But what does that say, you think, about the uh, that it's coming more from the right, really? Well, I think the, the, the problem really was was at the creation of the government because Bennett drew voters. Bennett's party were right-wing voters who voted for him, actually thinking he's even more right than Netanyahu. And he made a commitment to his voters that he would never sit in in a government that would make Lapid prime minister. And he also made a public commitment. And this is, it was a kind of read my lips pledge the day before the election on television and on a a right-wing television station where he put a piece of paper and he says, I'm never going to make a government that would have Lapid become prime minister and I will never sit in a government with Ram, this Islamist party. And then he sort of challenged Netanyahu to make the same pledge. And the reason why he went on TV to do that is because they were saying, the Likud was saying in the election campaign down the stretch is that this is what's going to happen. He's going to take your votes from the right and he's going to take it into uh, a center-left government. And so you're actually going to be voting for a left-wing government at the end of the day. And that was draining support from Bennett's party. And so Bennett, in order to fend that allegation off, and to dismiss the allegation, went public and said, this is a lie, this is not true, and all that. And in the end, that's exactly what happened. And so the members of of the Amina party, of Bennett's party, they were facing this problem from the beginning, that the ones that they went to personally, and they assured them, we are not going to go into a government that's going to make Lapid prime minister. We are not going to go and do this, and we're not going to go and do that. And what Likud is telling you is not true. They had had a, a, a serious difficulty. I think they didn't have an easy week. 
uh, just because of the, this has changed. By the way, which is different than Saar, because Saar, Gidon Saar, said openly that he was never going to sit with Netanyahu. And so his voters don't maybe feel that same sense of betrayal, whatever voters are left, because he's at around 3% in the polls. But they don't feel that he betrayed them in that way. He also said that he would not make Lapid prime minister. But his major pledge, and he said publicly, he said, if you want Netanyahu, don't vote for me. Because I'm not going into any government that Netanyahu is going to be prime minister. I mean, he said that. Bennett did not say that. He said kind of the opposite. And so I think that's what's created this enormous problem in the Amina coalition. And also, you know, at the beginning where people sort of herald the stability, I was... uh, I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago and somebody said, you know, isn't this a tremendous achievement or quoted an Israeli public intellectual who said it was a big achievement, the stability of the government after nine months. I'm like, really? That's like the new bar? That's that's a pretty, it's like when they say that Israel has the largest gay pride parade in the Middle East. I say, well, that's a pretty low bar. Okay. All of a sudden now we got nine months and this is, this is the, the, the paradigm of stability. No, it's not. I mean, you come into a government, you're sitting there, it takes you a few weeks to even find your offices, you got to pass a budget, which I think is a glue that bound the government together in its early stages, and you've got a few things that everybody can agree on at the beginning that you try to do. But then when you get into more difficult issues, and then when the reality intervenes, and in Israel, it, we're not Holland. You know, where the government sets its agenda and then here's the side, here's what we're going to do. Something always happens externally in Israel that is going to test this new coalition that you have. And in this case, you have violence uh, and terrorism from Palestinians. Now you potentially have Gaza coming into the mix. And unless you have a coherent government that can respond to those challenges, all of these external events really create fissures within the government and ruptures within the government. And in this case, it's especially true because here you have people on the right, people who are clearly on the right in Bennett's party, people clearly on the left in labor and merits, and then you have the Islamist party altogether. So their approach to dealing with Palestinian violence will be different. It's not just a territorial issue that has divided right and left within Israel. It's also what is the best approach in order to confront terrorism. And remember, Bennett was a huge critic of Netanyahu that he was too soft on, on terrorism, that he wasn't doing enough in Gaza. And so now all of these statements you know, come back because of all the statements that he made when he was in the opposition. The difference was Netanyahu had a coherent government, which was really right and a little bit in the center. And here you have right, center, left, and Islamists in one coalition. So when you have this external shock, it's very hard for such a government to competently and coherently address um, the the political and the policy and the real life challenges that Israel faces. Okay, uh, you know maybe on our next uh, podcast we'll uh, we'll talk more about Gaza because I think that's uh, it's, it's obviously a very important subject. But uh, we've run we out thought of time. we were out. We thought yeah, they, we were out, and they, they pull us they back pull, in. What did Pacino say? In. Let me uh, remind us. You mentioned at the top of the show, but those people who are listening who want to send in their questions, you want to say that uh, address yeah. one more time. Yeah, thanks, for us Ron. for those questions. Yeah, no, thanks for. Uh, you send it to the non-distinguished fellow at no. Well, what's the what's? I'm just teasing. I, I, I what's think what's we, the address? Uh, we, we formally call it the diplomatically incorrect at jinsa.org. That is where you uh, should send in any questions you have. Diplomatically, or, it's no the the at the beginning or no, no the. It's diplomatic. Diplomatically incorrect at jinsa.org. At jinsa.org, and we have to finish Mike with something yeah. with something about sports. Yeah, something. Sure. Because I know you in St. Louis, you know, if the cards aren't playing, you don't care about the rest of the world. But, <laughs> but some of us who actually enjoy watching sports are now getting to watch the NBA playoffs. No, no, please. And I hope that our listeners are overwhelmingly rooting for the Miami Heat to, uh, to take the title. Because as a, as a Miami boy, you know, we grew up as a one, I grew up as a one-sport town. Because we didn't have anybody but the Dolphins at the... Uh, until I was about 15, then the heat came along, 
Then we got the Marlins. I'm not really sure the Marlins are a real team. They're kind of a Mr. Potato Head that gets put together all the time, but it hasn't really developed a fan base. But we in Miami are pulling for the heat, and I hope that you as a St. Louis person who can be a free agent when it comes to basketball teams will uh, will at least support the heat during this run for your co- for the sake of your co-host on Diplomatically Incorrect. I'll support it, especially since LeBron doesn't play for them. Uh, I'm, I'm good with uh, support. Oh, you're a LeBron fan? No, just the opposite. As long as he's not, I just don't want him to. Ah, win. I see you root so, against LeBron. Yeah, so I think uh, I think it's fine. Out of respect to you, loyalty to you, I'm rooting for the Heat. What? Why do you root against LeBron? I mean, I can understand where the LeBron Jordan, you know, barstool talk, but why do you root yeah. against him? Well, first of all, I, I find I don't like his uh, political comments and uh, on uh, U.S. domestic issues that bothered me. And I don't know. To me, Michael Jordan was the greatest basketball player. So, uh. okay. Well, let let me just say I don't I don't root against LeBron. And if LeBron wants to come on diplomatically incorrect to respond to my co-host's allegations and to discuss with us the latest policy issues, consider this an open invitation. He has some time on his hands right now because he's not in the playoffs. So uh, he's welcome to come on the show. It might actually boost some ratings. We might even get a few more listeners. I'm with you. I'll let you. I think you should ask the questions, though. Yeah, I think so. I'd be happy to All have right. him on. Deal. Uh, maybe he'll even uh, get on our podcast and uh, say and start criticizing uh, the Chinese uh, treatment of the Uyghurs. I think that would be a real advance for him, by the way, uh, and for NBA basketball. Good point. If he's going to do it, he yeah. might as well do it on Diplomatically Incorrect. If he's going to be absolutely. Diplomatically Incorrect, he might as well do right. it. On Diplomatically Incorrect. Thank you all for listening. Speak to you soon. Thank you very much. Good to have you.